The next case was presented by Dr. Paul Markham to Drs. Grelo and Bud. This is a 48-year-old woman, premenopausal, previously uh, entirely healthy, who presented to her primary care physician complaining of fatigue and was found to be anemic with a hemoglobin of 10.5. Then was also found to have a palpable cervical lymph node that was biopsied and found to be a high-grade metastatic adenocarcinoma that was ERPR, HER2 new negative. In the course of that workup, she was then found to have a right breast mass that was biopsied or actually subsequently operated on five centimeters and also had some positive axillary nodes. Went to see her oncologist who, of course, staged her, and she had a CT PET that showed diffusely metastatic disease with nodal involvement as well as bone involvement and also had a cardiac study with a MUGA that showed an EF of 20%. She'd actually been asymptomatic prior to that time, but, of course, then <laughs> shortly after that developed some heart failure symptoms and was admitted. Can you talk a little bit more about her cardiac situation? She's a city worker who had a fairly sedentary job, not really any other cardiovascular risk factors, no family history. She was not obese. She actually looked quite healthy to look at her. And after her admission for the congestive heart failure, was actually had a cardiac MRI done to make sure she'd not had some silent MIs or something. And that just showed a global hypokinetic heart consistent with a diffuse dilated cardiomyopathy with no perineurgia, no infiltration or anything of that nature was placed on an ACE inhibitor and a beta blocker and was actually in some Lasix and was quite asymptomatic from her heart failure after that point, really, uh, class one symptoms at worst. We were talking about the sort of coincidence of having heart failure and breast cancer at the same time. Do, do either of you know or anybody here know in terms of a paraneoplastic syndrome or why, how we might be able to link those two together as coincidence? I can't, I can't think of anything. For what it's worth, I asked John Mackey also, and he didn't know one either. So he certainly looked at the cardiac toxicity issue quite a bit too. Cardiologist so. saw her and just said it was a cardiomyopathy. Yeah. yeah. So, Tom, what would you be thinking in this situation? Well, I guess... To me, the question is whether to use bevacizumab or not in this patient. And there's some concern about cardiac toxicity with bevacizumab, but it sounds like she was responding to treatment. So I think I would be inclined in this triple negative patient to use something like paclitaxel and bevacizumab. Julie? I would agree that would have been my first choice. Paclitaxel, bevacizumab, best studied. I think I've made the leap to the albumin-bound paclitaxel here, in this case, if I can get insurance coverage for that. you know. But carefully following the heart, hypertension is something that can come up when long-term treatment with this. What do we know about NAB and BEV combined? So I'm There's trying, a phase there, two trial, that, mm-hmm. and... It was tolerable, and I can't remember the response rate. I think it was 40% or something. I think we have some small data on safety together, which is the main thing. And it's the same central drug. So I'm, you know, it is paclitaxel as the efficacy. I think there's a small safety data. What's your take, Julie, in terms of the risk-benefit of NAB versus regular paclitaxel? Well, it can be given without pre-meds, which is, I think, a big advantage for our patients if you can emit the steroids and the antihistamines. It can generally be infused a lot faster. It can be given at a higher dose for the same amount of myelosuppression that you get. And, you know, at least in the registration trial of Q3 weekly, cremophore paclitaxel versus nab paclitaxel, which Admittedly, Q3 weekly isn't the optimal way to give the chromophore paclitaxel. It showed superior efficacy, partly because maybe you can give a higher dose because of the myelosuppression being less, maybe because of the albumin receptors and interactions on the tumor cell surface that make it a little more specific to delivery to the tumor as opposed to some other tissues in the body. So I think that the only 
real disadvantage of nabpaclitaxel is the cost and the insurance approval. Otherwise, I would just have substituted routinely for paclitaxel. What was your take on the randomized phase two study looking at weekly nab versus docetaxel? Bill Gratishar presented it both at San Antonio then an updated ASCO. The standard Q3 weekly dose of Taxil was compared to two different doses of weekly nabpaclitaxel and a Q3 weekly nabpaclitaxel. And this was a randomized phase two where the intention was that they were going to pick a dose and a schedule of nabpaclitaxel to put into a fully powered phase three against docetaxel. And the weekly doses appeared better across the board than the the Q3 weekly, whether it was Q3 weekly, nabpaclitaxel, or docetaxel. The doses were 153 out of four weeks, or 100, I think, three mm-hmm. out of four weeks in the metastatic setting. And with originally the 100 and 150 per meter squared every three weeks of nabpaclitaxel looked similar with the update. It looked like the 150 might have been a little better. So it, they've chosen the 150 three out of four weeks to be head-on compared in a fully powered phase three trial with docetaxel. It looked quite interesting and impressive in this phase two, but you know we're doing a lot of randomized phase two and we have to make sure that we understand that the main purpose of those is to look at toxicities, et cetera, and they're generally not powered enough to make firm statements about the efficacy. Tom, what's your take on the risk-benefit issues here? Well, I think nabpaclitaxel is certainly no worse in terms of efficacy, just as Julie said, compared to every three-week paclitaxel, appears better compared to docetaxel. The weekly regimen of nabpaclitaxel appears better, so I have no concerns about its efficacy, and it is very well-tolerated so that I think it's a good drug. One thing that has come up is that there might be a little more neuropathy, especially when given in the weekly schedule. But I think we have to be very careful when we have this trial, and it's relevant in the E2100 trial as well, when you've got a longer time to progression, so patients are on a given arm of a trial for a lot longer, if there's a neuropathy difference, like an E2100, which there was, the paclitaxel, bevacizumab arm had more neuropathy, but they were on drug for six months longer on average. So they have a lot longer to get it. And in, if you stay on longer because you're not progressing, you will get more side effects. So I think we have to be very careful. It could be there's really a little bit more neuropathy because we're giving a higher dose too. But we we have to be careful that it's not just that these patients are staying on drug for several months longer, and that's why there's a little more neuropathy. Can you follow up with the patient? So I went through a lot of that same thought process, and so because of the anemia, I certainly had her scope to make sure she didn't have any GI bleeding before it, and scanned her brain, which was also negative, and struggled with the bevacizumab question, but did decide to go ahead and give her a braxine and bevacizumab, and partly just because of some experience and being worried about the temp over disease, I departed from my normal practice and actually gave her weekly carbo with it as well, at least for the first three months. So she actually had a quite nice response. She had circulating tumor cells that were 110 to start off with that went down to 9 after two months of treatment. And the cervical lymph node pretty much went away completely. How did you explain the anemia? Was it bone marrow infiltration, were you Yeah, thinking, I think she'd what? had a little bit of iron deficiency from being premenstrual still, but she actually stopped her period shortly after that. And you know, I always debate this issue of whether I need to do a bone marrow biopsy in somebody in this situation and really define that that's what's going on. But I think that's what it was. Or... I certainly had hopes that maybe this was a perineoplastic syndrome, and if I could get a good response or EF would somehow get better. It didn't. It stayed at 15 to 20%, but she still was pretty much asymptomatic and well-compensated on her medical regimen. So how far out is she right now? So she is now 10 months out. After the first two months, I dropped out the carbo and just went straight with the Abraxane of Aston, and 
early December, she was developing some significant neuropathy from neobraxane and actually gave her a break so she could go to Disney World over the holidays and and seeing her back this month. Is she still in the bevacizumab? Or? Still in the bevacizumab, yeah. Blood pressure's done okay. Blood pressure, heart, everything's stable. Yeah, hasn't seemed to decompensate at all, which I was certainly worried about. Tom, you talked about, quote, cardiac issues with Bev or the fact that it's being looked into. Do we really know there's anything there other than the fact that you can get hypertension and obviously that has There cardiac- was a phase two trial with doxorubicin bevacizumab in soft tissue sarcoma done at Memorial, Bob Mackey and colleagues. And there was significant cardiac toxicity with that regimen. Now, it was you know, a relatively small trial. The dose of doxorubicin was higher. I think it was 90 per meter squared. So that was a signal. And interestingly, you know, the trials of trastuzumab plus bevacizumab with no chemo, small numbers again, but it really does appear that there are higher rates of cardiac dysfunction from the two together. ECOG, which has now, have they opened or are about to open the adjuvant trial in which bevacizumab will be used, adjuvantly did a preliminary trial looking to pick a way that they were going to dose and would they overlap with the anthracycline or not. And they didn't see a lot of issue in their trial, but we're carefully going to be monitoring ejection fractions in the ECOG adjuvant bevacizumab trial. Getting back to the NAB-Paclitaxel, what are some of the phase three studies that are out there right now looking at NAB? I know there's one that's going to be looking at Paclitaxel, Bev, NAB, Bev, and Ixabipalone, Bev. Yeah, so that's a combined ECOG-NCCTG trial and a metastatic trial which is interesting and hasn't opened and has been evolving. We in the Southwest Oncology Group are going to do a preoperative trial in locally advanced and inflammatory breast cancer, looking at our kind of metronomic backbone of weekly doxorubicin daily oral cyclophosphamide that we've previously proven in a locally advanced setting beats Q3 weekly kind of dosing of AC. It's the backbone that Tom is using in the SWOG 0221 ongoing trial compared to a dose-tense regimen. And we're going to have as our main taxane, NAB paclitaxel. And since this is the preoperative trial in locally advanced breast cancer, lots of biopsies built in it, a lot of good correlative science, because looking at can we predict who responds to various regimens. And it may be that we will find some profiles that predict a better response to the NAB paclitaxel versus paclitaxel alone. Our trial won't show that because we don't have a paclitaxel arm. But things like SPARC, like you know the GP90, GP60, albumin, and receptor, things like that, that might actually be separate from even the antitubulin properties. So interesting era that we've entered. I think we really are working hard on sorting out, personalizing. I think there will be some patients who still will need an anthracycline, but I bet we'll figure out a whole bunch that don't in the near future.